Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with Israel. And could you give us an update on the West Bank violence and the situation in Gaza? Uh, yes. So um, we've been cataloging uh, the ongoing violence in the West Bank over the course of January. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But on Friday, uh, there was a, a, a an attack. A gunman attacked a synagogue or near a synagogue in the uh, Neve Yaakov settlement, which is in East Jerusalem. Killed seven people and wounded, I believe, five more. Uh, this is uh, came in retaliation for uh, an incident in Janine the previous day, in which uh, Israeli it was an Israeli arrest raid in which. Uh, I believe somewhere around 10 people were killed. Uh, I haven't seen the latest uh, figures. I don't know if any of the people who were wounded died, but uh, somewhere around 10 people. It was the single deadliest incident in the West Bank uh, in, in on record, really. And so this shooting came probably in retaliation uh, for that. Then there was, uh, following that, uh, overnight... Uh, there was a a bit of rocket fire out of Gaza. Two rockets uh, were fired out of Gaza, which prompted the Israeli military to respond by bombing uh, a training site. Uh, I believe they char- characterized it at uh, a link to Hamas. Things continued over the weekend. Uh, Israeli settlers went on something of a rampage. There were reports of, I think, over 140 incidents of settler violence over the weekend. Uh, at least one resulting in the death of a Palestinian, but there were other, you know, to varying degrees of severity. Um, there was another shooting on Saturday, and Benjamin Netanyahu over the weekend announced a package uh, of responses to the shooting on Friday, which really seems to have uh, shaken up the Israeli establishment. Uh, included among that was a plan to expedite gun licenses for Israeli citizens, uh, which would include settlers, which is basically a call for more settler violence as a way to uh, kind of retaliate for Palestinian violence, which of course is, uh, you know, all in a cycle that goes all the way back. Things have continued to be tense uh, over the course of the week. Uh, there was another incident of rocket fire out of Gaza on Wednesday, possibly to commemorate the fact that January proved to be the deadliest month for Palestinians in the West Bank since 2015, October of 2015. This was during a period that was so violent, it's sometimes referred to as an intifada, uh, although it's not commonly uh, referred to that way. But suffice to say, it was a uniquely violent month in the West Bank, uh, even by the standards of this of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, the Israelis, Israeli military responded again with bombing targets in Gaza uh, overnight. There has been more rocket fire out of Gaza on Thursday. I, there haven't been any casualties uh, in these exchanges, but um, obviously the situation is in flux still uh, as we're recording this. There will presumably be another Israeli retaliation for this Thursday rocket fire. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's up for grabs, I think, whether this ends in another Gaza war uh, or it fizzles out. Uh, obviously there are uh, have been many incidents of 
back and forth attacks uh, from Gaza and, and the Israeli military uh, that have not escalated to war, but um, we could be on the brink of something, especially given uh, how bad the situation has been in the West Bank for, for the last several weeks. What does this suggest to you about what the new administration wants? Uh, well, I think what they want is, um, I think they're provoking this. I mean, I think they're provoking a response because it's galvanizing politically. This is a government that is not terribly popular. It's been protested. There have been thousands, tens of thousands of people protesting weekly uh, in Tel Aviv over the composition of this government, which is very far right, even by Israeli standards. Uh, they've been protesting. Uh, one of the, the aims of this government is to weaken uh, substantially the Israeli judiciary, and there are concerns about judicial independence and sort of rule of law, democracy, the, the, these fundamental kind of uh, underpinnings. Of, I don't want to you know, comment on the state of Israeli democracy under uh, the current apartheid system uh, in any detail, but people are concerned that whatever you make of Israeli democracy is on the way out because of this government. So it's a divisive government and, and nothing tends to rally people around the flag better than a military conflict. So I think they have provoked... Uh, they're they're trying to provoke a response. Uh, maybe they don't want a full blown intifada, but I think another couple of week Gaza war would not be uh, out of the question for them at this point. So let's move on to uh, the drone strike on Iran that occurred last weekend. Uh, yes. So this was overnight, kind of late Saturday into Sunday morning. There was a drone attack on an Iranian military industrial facility. Uh, it's still not clear what exactly it was in Isfahan. According to the Iranians, uh, their air defenses intercepted most of the drones. There was only minor damage. You can probably assume that uh, it was a little heavier than that, but I don't think there were any casualties. If there had been, the Iranians probably would have made some hay about that. This cowardly attack was carried out against us. Our security bodies are powerfully acting to ensure maximum national security, and such moves can't impact our nuclear scientists' will and intentions to achieve peaceful nuclear energy. Everybody has assumed uh, that this was Israel that carried out this attack, I think you know, for obvious reasons, uh, even the, uh, you know, always interesting anonymous U.S. official leaked to uh, a couple of media outlets, uh, maybe it was different officials, I don't know, uh, the, that the U.S. Was, was pretty sure that Israel was behind this attack. Uh, the facility, as I say, it's not clear what exactly it was, although there is some satellite imagery that suggests it was linked with uh, Iran's Space Research Center, which would suggest involvement in uh, Iran's missile development program. But, you know, again, details here are, are fairly spotty. The Israelis don't talk about these kinds of things. Uh, the Iranians you filter everything very heavily before it gets to the media. So uh, you have to take anything they say with a grain of salt. They have now, uh, I think as of Thursday, accused the Israelis uh, openly of carrying out this attack. And they're, they're threatening some kind of uh, retaliation, although what that would be, I, I don't know. There's an interesting connection here with the Ukraine war. Uh, one of the uh, uh, officials, uh, Mikhailo uh, Podolik, I'm, I'm sorry I'm mangling his name, uh, but one of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's top advisors kind of tweeted something snarky about this attack. And of course, Iran has been accused of supplying drones and missiles to the Russian military that are being used in Ukraine. Uh, the Iranian 
uh, government summoned the Ukrainian Charge d'Affaires in Tehran to complain about this tweet. Um, it, it's possible that the Israelis, uh, Netanyahu has suggested more openness to supporting Ukraine. Now, Israel has been very reluctant to kind of openly support Ukraine with anything more than non-lethal aid, uh, medicine, you know, battlefield uh, kind of medical supplies, uh, that sort of thing, because they don't want to mess around with their relationship with Russia, which is is relatively important for Israel in terms of managing uh, its interests in Syria. So they haven't done much. They've been getting criticism for not supplying Ukraine with weapons. Netanyahu has suggested uh, maybe more openness to supporting the Ukrainians. And it's possible that, uh, you know, they would claim uh, this attack. Although, again, they're not going to do it publicly, but they would say, uh, well, look, we're attacking Iran, which is supplying Russia, which is using Iranian weapons in Ukraine. So we're, we're helping you in kind. Uh, if, you know, even if we're not providing you, uh, kind of with missile defenses or any, any other weaponry, uh, openly. So it's, th- there is maybe a link here to Ukraine, but, uh, you know, that's, that's speculative. Let's turn to Ukraine. Uh, what's going on in the war? Particularly, could you t- let us know about Russian gains and the update on the Western arms shipments? Sure. So the Russians have, uh, seized a, uh, they seized a village earlier this week, Blahodatny. Uh, or Blahodatnya, uh, which is located near Bakhmut. Bakhmut has been the epicenter of most of the fighting for several weeks now in Donetsk Oblast. Uh, the Wagner group claimed several days earlier that they had, their forces had captured uh, the village, but the Russian military tends to be a little more circumspect about this, so it took them uh, a few days to kind of confirm this. Uh, the fighting is continuing to, to go on in Donetsk. There were, was a report that... Um, the Russians are advancing on Lehman, which is a city uh, in Donetsk that was uh, initially taken by the Russians not long after uh, their invasion, but was lost to the Ukrainians uh, again in September. Uh, the Ukrainians retook it as part of their uh, counteroffensive at Kharkiv uh, as it kind of expanded to the east. Um, so Lehman is a, is a relatively strategically interesting or uh, important city, although uh, having been thoroughly decimated as a result of all this fighting, I'm not sure how much uh, strategic value is still left in it. But essentially, the situation on the ground continues to be the Russians are pouring a lot of uh, men, basically. I mean, they, they seem to have switched from a tactic of uh, relying on artillery superiority to relying on their manpower superiority and just kind of throwing waves of attackers at Ukrainian defenses in this region. Uh, that's a fight they can probably win eventually. It'll come at a high cost, but it'll come at a high cost uh, for the Ukrainians as well. Uh, the, the U.S. has been for several weeks supposedly uh, advising the Ukrainians to get out of Bakhmut uh, and just let the Russians have it because they're they're losing too much uh, in the defense. The, the commentary I've seen about this area in Western media has been it's not terribly vital strategically. Uh, I think the, the fact that the Ukrainians are putting up such a fight uh, to keep it suggests that it is, in fact, vital strategically, uh, that maybe this is a little bit of cope on the part of these uh, Western media outlets. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can't say that for sure. It's just interesting that on the one hand, you have uh, the analysis that this place isn't that important. And on the other hand, you have the Ukrainians who should know uh, their country better than anyone kind of throwing everything they have into to defending this place. Uh, on the weapons front, uh, the big 
speculation, of course, is uh, now that the tank issue has been settled, is, is circling around uh, providing Ukraine with advanced aircraft, jets, F-16s, uh, basically, is what the Ukrainians want. Uh, Joe Biden on Monday said flatly no when he was asked if the U.S. will be providing uh, Ukraine with F-16s. Will the United States provide F-16s to Ukraine? No. I suspect this was not a final no, given that the U.S. has uh, wavered on almost everything else that the Ukrainians have asked for uh, and eventually given in. I suspect we will be revisiting the issue of F-16s. Uh, on that note, uh, the Biden administration is reportedly putting together another major arms package uh, for Ukraine somewhere in the neighborhood of about $2 billion worth uh, of weapons. This is going to include a new uh, longer-range munition, the ground-launched small-diameter bomb, uh, which has a range of 150 kilometers. It is longer-range than anything that the Ukrainians I believe in anything the Ukrainians have right now. Uh, the Ukrainians have been asking for the Army Tactical Missile System, which has a 300-kilometer range uh, that would put a lot of targets inside Russia proper uh, within range of Ukrainian artillery in the U.S. for that reason uh, has been resisting this. But the uh, GLSDB is a compromise. It does put Crimean targets uh, in range of Ukrainian artillery. So, uh, you know, I think the, the administration is hoping that will be enough to... Uh, buy the Ukrainians over, hold the Ukrainians over for uh, for a while. But again, this this reflects a, a weakening of what had previously been U.S. resistance uh, to providing these weapons. And this is why I think uh, this is a pattern now, and it's why I think that eventually uh, the aircraft issue will uh, will get a different answer. What does this suggest to you about what Washington, D.C. is thinking? So the, the the scuttlebutt when the war began was that D.C. wants it to continue. It's funny. This, this seemed to offend very many people, but it seems clear. D.C. wanted the war to continue because it's going to the, – the, the prediction was that it would weaken Russia in both the short and medium terms. Um, do you think that's still happening or what do you think is the strategic thinking now? It's interesting. The, the strategic thinking – Right now, I think, is to give the Ukrainians what they need to manage the conflict where it is. And again, it's been fairly stable territorially since uh, the Ukrainians took Kherson. It hasn't changed. The, the front line hasn't changed all that much. Uh, we may be on the verge of, of some kind of little breakthrough in Donetsk, but who knows, uh, by the Russians. But I think the, the plan now is to get through the winter Spring in Ukraine, if it's a typical spring, will probably be fairly wet, which will make the terrain uh, fairly unsuited to to any major advances, especially with heavy armor. Uh, and a after that, you're going to start to see all these tanks that have been promised, uh, an influx of these tanks coming in, and the Ukrainians will have had time to to train on them. And then I think the the intention uh, is for some kind of Ukrainian counteroffensive at that point. I don't know where it would. Uh, where it would take place. It could be in the south. That seems more likely uh, at this point than the east. Um, so I think in the short term, it's just to kind of hold the line uh, until conditions are right for uh, another attempt at uh, regaining some territory. Now, at the maximum, you still have people talking about, um, you know, driving Russia out of the entirety of pre-2014 Ukraine, which includes Crimea. Uh, th this seems like an impossibility. I don't think the Russians 
have any intention uh, of giving up Crimea, uh, you know, it would take a, a monumental effort to do that. There is a report from your favorite, uh, your and my favorite uh, think tank, the Rand Corporation, uh, that's been making the rounds this week that suggests that the U.S. should be shifting gears toward uh, really pushing diplomacy, that we're at a point where the Russians have been weakened badly. They haven't, uh, they've thrown a lot of materiel and, and man- manpower uh, into relatively little gains, uh, relatively small gains, I should say. Uh, and that the idea that you're even going to be able to drive the, the Russians back to like pre-February 2022 borders is fanciful at this point, let alone to say you're going to drive them uh, out of Crimea on top of that. So uh, this report suggests that Western governments should be um, nudging the Ukrainians a bit, giving them some realistic expectations about how much longer they can expect all this kind of carte blanche Western military aid. They, they suggest that the Ukrainians may be feeling like this is limitless, and so that's affecting their willingness to negotiate. And at the same time, engaging with Russia uh, about discussing a path towards sanctions relief that would be part of a a bigger peace uh, deal. So interestingly, uh, you know, this has kind of been making the rounds. It's been written up in a number of outlets um, and hasn't, although it's saying things that people got yelled at for saying six months ago, uh, has not, to my knowledge, gotten anybody yelled at uh, at this point. So that's, that's somewhat interesting. The most important thing of all. Uh, let's yeah. <laughs> switch to our favorite organization, uh, NATO. And could you update us on what's going on with Sweden, Finland, and Turkey with regard to the whole NATO situation? Yeah, there were a couple of developments here. I know this is a story we've been following. Uh, the big one, potentially, uh, is that uh, Chris Van Hollen, the sen- Democratic senator from Maryland, uh, was at a, an event in Washington on Tuesday and told the audience uh, that he doesn't see any scenario under which Congress would approve the sale of F-16s to Turkey, uh, which has been sitting on the table for a while and it's been frozen and the Turks are very anxious to get this done. Uh, if Turkey doesn't ratify or doesn't approve the NATO applications of both Finland and Sweden. Uh, now, we've been talking about this, we've been covering this, and, and Sweden's NATO bid is on life support at this point, it seems like. There's been a number of uh, incidents. The Turks are not happy with Sweden refusing to extradite uh, wanted fugitives uh, to Turkey. They're not happy with protests that have been held in Stockholm by the PKK on the one hand and by far-right politicians desecrating the Quran on the other hand. Uh, it seems like Sweden's bid is is pretty, you know, on the ropes, let's say. Uh, the Turks just this week f- floated the idea of approving Finland's NATO application and rejecting Sweden's as a sort of, I guess, compromise to the rest of NATO. Uh, Finland hasn't done nearly as much to alienate the Turks, let's say, or they they don't seem uh, nearly as dissatisfied with them as they do with Sweden. The Finnish and Swedish governments have all along said, it's both of us or neither. We're doing this as a package. Uh, It has to be classic prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting. You want to watch what Finnish officials say if this goes on uh, much longer. But so, uh, you know, there there is a, you know, there is some intrigue going on in that regard. Now, the Van Hollen thing is interesting because uh, it brings the United States into play. It brings this F-16 sale that, as I say, the, the Turks really want. They really want to get this done. And they've been quite anxious about it. It brings that into 
the conversation, but it brings it in as sort of a stick instead of a carrot. The, the framing here is if Turkey doesn't approve the, the NATO memberships, then we cannot sell them F-16s. I don't know if the flip side to that is true, if there's some kind of offer here. Uh, if the Turks do approve both NATO applications, then definitely they'll get the F-16s. That doesn't seem to be uh, what Van Hollen was talking about. I don't know if the Biden administration uh, would make an offer like that or if it could. I mean, it probably, I think, probably could whip the votes in Congress to get that done. Uh, but I don't know if that's on the table. Derek, could you update us about what's going on in Mali? Uh, yes, uh, there have been a couple of things, a couple of interesting uh, developments in Mali. The coordination of Azawad movements, or CMA uh, is the acronym, which is a predominantly Tuareg alliance that, that formed amid the Tuareg uprising in northern Mali in 2012, which kind of began uh, Mali's descent into you know, jihadist violence. It, it, it led to a brief civil war. The, the Tuaregs eventually kind of, uh, you know, most of them agreed to engage in a peace process, but the jihadist element took advantage of the chaos and is, you know, metastasized to the present day. Uh, the CMA announced this week that it is uh, pulling out of the constitutional process. It's supposed to be participating uh, in the transition from military rule back to civilian rule uh, which is supposed to culminate in an election in March 2024. Uh, the CMA announced that it's pulling out of that process. It had already announced that it was suspending involvement in uh, the Northern Mali peace process because, believe it or not, the deal uh, that these Tuareg groups cut with the Malian government uh, way back when has still not really been implemented. They cited the Malian junta, the current ruling junta's lack of political will uh, in making this announcement. Now, there's a related piece of this, uh, which according to uh, AFP, the, the French news agency, uh, Iyad Agali, who is the leader of the Al-Qaeda group Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin, uh, which is active in Mali and, and has been active in uh, Burkina Faso as well, uh, that he's been negotiating with the CMA and a number of other kind of local armed groups in northern Mali about forming some kind of united front against Islamic State. Uh, all of these groups are fighting Islamic State. It seems to be the more uh, virulent of the two uh, kind of major jihadist strains in this region. And Agali is an interesting character because he is the leader of the Al-Qaeda, what is effectively Al-Qaeda in Mali. But he has flirted with negotiations with the government, with, uh, again, some of these other uh, Tuareg groups in the north from time to time. And his horizons don't really seem to be international. They seem to be his grievances, his issues seem to be more local or, or national in scope. Uh, so he seems like somebody who could be negotiated with. There have been, you know, fits and starts at, at contacts between his group uh, and the Malian government, but uh, nothing that has, has uh, stuck. But this is interesting because, you know, maybe the, the presence of a common enemy will, uh, you know, kind of bring some of these uh, groups together. Uh, the fact that the CMA is now disavowing contact with the, the junta may actually free it up to engage in, in negotiations with uh, Agali and JNM. I don't know. But the, just interesting things to watch, I think, uh, in that situation. And we 
by that I mean you, will be watching it closely. Uh, so let's turn to our new Cold War segment. Jake, come up with some like cool new Cold War thing, sort of Rambo meets Jurassic Park vibe. Because a yeah, lot of things... Nice. Yeah, Jake, uh, do it. If guy, uh, audience, if it doesn't sound good, it's Jake's fault. Um, Jake's fault, yes. Yeah, most things are. Uh, so there's a lot that's been going on in this sphere. So why don't we start with the new uh, military agreement between the United States and the Philippines? Uh, this just happened... Uh on Thursday, not long before uh, we recorded this, it was uh, reported a couple of days ago, however, Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary, U.S. Defense Secretary, was in Manila uh, on Thursday to uh, agree to expand uh, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement between the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, the key thing here from the new Cold War perspective uh, is that the U.S. will be getting access to four more Philippine military installations uh, than it was already already had access to, including uh, at least two, I believe, in uh, the northern uh, part of the Philippines in Luzon, uh, which is along the South China Sea. It puts the U.S. close. It gives the U.S. access to facilities that are closer to Taiwan uh, in the case of a conflict there. So. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, the, the, the object here, uh, as everything, uh, that goes on in the Pacific is for the U.S. seems to be, uh, preparing for a possible military conflict with China. And let's talk about the Solomon Islands and the new embassy that our great nation right. has opened there. So on a similar note, uh, the United States, uh, opened an embassy in the Solomon Islands on Thursday. Uh, it, the last time the U.S. had an embassy in the Solomons was 1993. Uh, it closed. Uh, we closed that embassy as part of I always said a we consolidation. Uh, well, we we it was at the time. Of course, this was in the afterglow of the great glorious victory of the Cold War. Ridiculous. We should have kept moment. it open. Um, and so it was felt, uh, in Washington that great power diplomacy, you know, great power competition wasn't going to be a thing anymore. We don't need to worry about these, you know, some of these states. We can consolidate. And so they reduced their Pacific Islands, uh, diplomatic presence. Uh, that, that, that didn't mean there was no consular service for the Solomons or anything like that, but it wasn't, uh, there was nothing on the Solomon or in Honiara to, to kind of, uh, represent U.S. interests. It was just being handled regionally instead of country by country. Uh, of course, now we are in the glorious new Cold War with China. Uh, so not only is great power diplomacy back, but it, great power diplomacy in the Pacific Islands region is uh, particularly back. Uh, the Solomons uh, have been uh, drifting closer to China in recent years. They signed a security agreement that's proven to be very controversial with uh, both Australia and the United States. Uh, and, and there are indications that they're, you know, more and more friendly with Beijing. So, you know, it became a priority, I think, for, uh, the Biden administration to reopen or to open a new embassy, uh, in the Solomons to kind of demonstrate uh, that the United States is here. We care. We hear you. Uh, that sort of thing. So this is another aspect of, of, uh, the competition for, uh, Hearts and minds among the people who are going to be most at risk of being killed uh, if the U.S. and China go to war. 
Yes, um, and uh, the U.S. is making clear it's in the Pacific to stay. So why don't we move on to uh, some recent news that made some headlines, that made some waves, and that's the USAF's, the United States Air Force's recent memo on war with China. Yes, so uh, it it uh, came out uh, a few days ago that uh, – Mike Minahan, who's an Air Force general, he commands the Air Mobility Command, which is sort of the logistical arm of the Air Force, refueling and, and that sort of thing, uh, maintenance, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has been telling subordinates, I believe wrote a memo to subordinates, uh, speculating that the U.S. and China are going to go to war in 2025. His reasoning seems to be that the aftermath of the U.S. presidential election and the Taiwanese presidential election in 2024 will create a perfect storm uh, of kind of, you know, U.S.-Chinese hostility and uh, possibly Taiwanese independence uh, sentiment and will drive uh, Beijing to, uh, you know, attempt to settle the Taiwan issue uh, by force. Minahan, uh, Spencer Ackerman, friend of the, uh, friend of the show, Spencer Ackerman wrote a, a great piece about this at his newsletter, Forever Wars. Uh, I would recommend people check out, you know, as he, as he wrote there, Minahan is not, uh, because he's the commander of, uh, the logistical arm of the Air Force. He's not really part of the decision making chain that would say, uh, determine that it's time to go to war with China or decide, may have any, uh, say in deciding, but his sentiment, uh, is probably one that is shared by a number of people at the Pentagon uh, in what could be a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. According to a statement from the Pentagon press secretary, the focus of the U.S., quote, remains on working alongside allies and partners to preserve a peaceful, free, and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, the Pentagon officially has rejected the memo. It's been, you know, kind of commented on it to say Minahan's views are his own. They're not uh, indicative of the, what the Defense Department says, you know, believes about China or the Defense Department's uh, view of China or its Chinese policy. Uh, so they've been very quick to disclaim it, but it seems hard to believe that he would be writing this to subordinates if it wasn't something that was, uh, you know, fairly, uh, you know, being talked about, let's say, uh, among the, the top brass uh, in the Pentagon. So uh, something uh, of concern, I would say, uh, if these people are writing memos to each other predicting war with China uh, anytime in the near future. Again, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to this that I think is uh, very uncomfortable. Derek, do you know what this makes me think? That people should subscribe to American Prestige before nuclear Armageddon. Because don't you just want to show the world and to show history that you support heterodox foreign policy thinking? What do you think about yes. that? In the, when the alien... Uh, alien archaeologists come to investigate the ruins of our broken civilization. They will find the records of who subscribed to this podcast and they will want to know uh, who you were. And it will be for posterity, really. Uh, because, of course, you know, you can't subscribe. You're not going to be able to subscribe after That's the nuclear for sure. war starts. Just, you know, let's be clear. Uh, so, yeah, get on that train now. And your name will be written in the Book of Life. Derek, thank you so much. Everyone, enjoy the news, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.